Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. You might think as we read this passage, where are you getting a miracle out of this passage? Well, I hope you will see. All right. Somebody told me today that once in a while in these evening services, preacher doesn't get a chance to preach. I see I've got 19 minutes. Boy, that's going to hurry it. All right. Acts chapter 9. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, that he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shone round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise. And go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And the men which journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man. And Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. But they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither did eat nor drink. And there was a certain disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and he said unto the Lord, and I beg your pardon. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord. I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done unto the saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on his name, on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Let us pause for just a second of prayer. Our Father, as we look now in your word, may our hearts be receptive, our souls open to receive what you would have for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to go to Galatians 1.23 for just one verse. It says this, and just a portion of it. He which persecuted us in times past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed, the miracle of the conversion of one man, the miracle of Damascus. We need not reiterate the passage that we read, but why the importance of talking about one man's conversion. We've been in services and around where many people have been converted. 
in homes, on the streets, in various places, in the factories, people have been converted. Received Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, and yet tonight we're going to spend this message dealing with the conversion of this one man. Well, first of all, let's look at some things of importance about his conversion. He was dead set against Christian people. He believed they were wrong to the point that he was willing to put them to death, for he thought they were blaspheming the God that he loved. He's going to do it. And then I read that verse over in Galatians, which says the same fellow that was persecuting the Christians is now preaching the same gospel against which he was so dead set. Well, first of all, it had a historical importance. For the Christian people, it was very important because he was out to kill them he was going to bring them in chains back to Jerusalem, and we know from history that many of them died as a result. And so they could breathe a sigh of relief. Well, we're glad this fellow was converted, and we're going to, it's going to save our life, and it saved many lives because he was converted. But more than that, this conversion provided the church with a champion. A champion. He became an accomplished theologian. Can you imagine what our scriptures would be like if we just took out of all of it everything that Paul has given us? Most of what we believe was penned by Paul. Most of it. The theology that we follow. So we have a champion theologian. We have a champion in church organization. Look at the churches all over Asia Minor, particularly, that he established. Wherever he went, he found a nucleus of people and got them together, and out of it became, uh, became a church. He was a writer of much of our sacred scripture. Take that portion out, and what do we have? A great void. Think of all of the scripture that he was the author of. Of course, we recognize that the Lord was directing it, but, uh, but using uh, Paul as the physical instrument to accomplish it. He was a pioneer, uh, one of the greatest, or perhaps the greatest pioneer the world has ever known, and certainly in religious circles. He was a, a man of historic importance, and so his conversion brings us a man of historic importance. But beyond that, there's some religious significance to that which he did. It sets the pattern and demonstrates very vividly the manner by which a person is to be saved. Now, listen carefully to, to this statement. It sets the pattern of evangelism. It sets the mechanism in motion and demonstrates very vividly how a person is saved. Here is a man who is on his way to Damascus for the purpose 
of putting in chains anybody that he could find that would say he was a Christian and ends up being converted on the road what happened there was a personal face-to-face one-on-one conversion the way of salvation is for one person to believe in one Christ and that's all to accept Jesus Christ as an individual it makes no difference how many people would walk down in a Billy Graham crusade to the front of the stadium to confess their faith in Christ they all come as individuals every one of them is a person it makes very clear the way to salvation is for a single individual to respond to the call of Jesus Christ and that's the only way in the Old Testament processes it was done differently there were certain rituals that one went through and there are churches that still try to hold on to rituals and say this is the way to salvation there is no demonstration in the New Testament that you perform a certain ritual and you're saved there are lots of people who believe that you're saved by baptism and yet there is not one shred of evidence that I can find in the scripture that would back that up we have to come back to a personal confrontation of one person to Jesus Christ. So there is no ritual. There is no circumcision. And there the early church went through that process of deciding that one did not have to go undergo this uh, ritual in order to be saved. There is no sacrament, no sacrifice, no rote repetitions. You cannot be saved by saying Hail Mary a hundred times or any other uh, little thing that you might want to think of. None of these things anymore have any importance. One is not saved by being a member of the church. Billy Graham has said that the greatest evangelism field in today's society is within the church, and I believe it. We've got lots of church people that aren't saved. They belong to the organization. They belong to the Welch Baptist Church or some other church, just like they belong to the Moose or to the Ladies' Aid Society or to whatever other organization might be listed. They are a member of an organization, and members of organizations, are. that is not the way that the Scripture identifies for salvation. I had a young man that I asked him in, on Sunday morning one time. Uh, I went back and spoke to him because he acted like he was under conviction. And I asked him if he were a Christian. And he said, yes, I am. And I couldn't say anything more. I had to accept him at his word. It later came back to me that he went home that day. And he said to his mother, he said, you know, the preacher asked me if I were saved today. And he had grown up in another denomination. And... Uh, he, I said to him, yes, I am. And he said, you know, I reckon I am. I was baptized when I was a baby. There are lots of people who believe that they are saved by something that happened to them or that they did 
or that they adhered to, or they proclaimed, and there is nothing in the scripture that will uphold this. It is a one-upon-one confrontation. And unless that has taken place, church memberships and baptisms and, and rituals and all of those things will have had no importance. Now let's look at what Paul said of the significance of his uh, conversion. And I was going to read a considerable amount of scripture, but I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to quickly paraphrase some of that. He called it a miracle. In Galatians 1.15, that's not exactly the word he used. He used the word grace. God's mercy gave him salvation, nothing that he did. God's mercy. He said the same thing in 1 Timothy 1.15, that, uh, that he obtained mercy by the grace of God. And this is exactly what happens in conversion. There is a miracle of God's mercy brought down upon a person. And because of God's mercy and that individual's willingness to say like Paul did to the Lord, what would you have me do? That salvation comes into a person's life. Now I know this is strong, but I believe it sincerely. And if you, even if you are a member of this church or any other church, and you have not had a one-on-one -on -one relationship with Jesus Christ, I would question whether you're saved. I can't make that decision. Only you and the Lord will know those things. But the conversion of a person is done one upon one. Now, let's go on and notice something about this. We're talking about a conversion of a man who is religious. Paul was religious. And he described his religious life. And he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was faultless. He performed all of the requirements of the church and went through all the rituals and was in attendance whenever required. There was nothing you could point your finger at in Paul's life. Morally, socially, religiously, any way you want to take him, he was an outstanding individual. You ladies would have loved for your daughters to have married him. He would have been a tremendous catch. He was a man of great magnitude in the mind and the hearts of, the, of society and of the church. But yet, in spite of all this, he was a lost man, but he didn't know he was lost until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. The conversion of a religious man seems like a conflict in terms. We've heard and, and perhaps have experienced some sensational conversions from prison. Or mayhap, perhaps a drunkard, and I can think of a few people that I have in my mind as I use these words. Or grossly immoral people, or gamblers, or whatever they may be. And these stand out and we say, my, isn't it marvelous that these people came to know the Lord? But you don't often think of a religious person becoming converted. You just automatically assume that he already is. Paul was religious, but Paul was lost. He was bound for hell, but he was saved. 
because he met Jesus Christ face to face. Now, let's, let's say three things about, his, about this type of conversion. And we're talking about the conversion of a religious person. One who is that type of individual, who is religious, who goes to church, who belongs to church, or what have you, but is not saved. Is not saved. A religious person will undergo a mental revolution. Paul was converted now on the road to Damascus, and he went immediately into seclusion for three years in Arabia. I believe that he was there in order to get his thinking straight. We make a terrible mistake in the church in assuming that as soon as a person has received Jesus Christ as his Savior, his mind is all straightened out and he understands and comprehends the whole picture. And this is an error, a definite error, to assume that as soon as a person is saved, he has changed his total mental picture of everything and he's got it all straightened out. This is a miracle of mental revolution in that he had to change his way of thinking. He had to retool his mind for it had been dead set on persecuting the church and all the people in it and now he's going to have to learn that all that he had believed to be right all these years is suddenly wrong. It's suddenly wrong. He had to change his social life and his family life. He had to undergo a complete revolution of the way that he lived. John Browning was an opium trader in China. But John Browning wrote in the cross of Christ I glory after he was converted. He had to change his lifestyle his pattern of living because his way of living and his Christian life now were in, in conflict. Oft times people want to accept Jesus Christ and go on living just like they had been all along. Even Paul, a religious man, had to change his manner of living and he had to begin it by changing his way of thinking. That which once was important no longer is important and vice versa. Secondly, Paul had to undergo a moral devaluation. He had to change his value system. He had to change his value system. I'm going to have to go to Philippians 3.8. Listen to these words. I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. Did you hear what he said? All of those things that he thought were of value, now he considers nothing but dung. That's a change in values. He had to renounce himself as of any value, well, I'm going to have to go back to Philippians. I intended to stay there. Philippians 3, 
Let me, let me notice from verse 4. Though I might have also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath where he might trust in the flesh, I more. He's saying, if you think that you've got something about you that you can trust in, I, am, I have more to trust in myself than you had. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching righteousness, which is in the law. I was blameless, but what things were gained for me, those I count lost for Christ. He had to change everything in his life. This is one of the problems that we have in people accepting Jesus Christ. They want his blessing, his salvation, but they don't want to do anything different than they've been doing. I'm telling you that when we accept Jesus Christ, we see things differently and we think things differently. The church becomes of utmost importance. Prayer is of tremendous value. Christian fellowship is, is valuable to us. Our moral character becomes important. All of these things suddenly take on value and all those things that we thought were important are no longer any value at all. If you have not changed your mental attitude and your moral values as a Christian, you better question your salvation. For once one has accepted Jesus Christ, he must rethink his beliefs and his values and make sure that they are right in the light of the Lord. Now, thirdly and lastly, real quickly, I'm two minutes over, but don't look at your watch or shake. I'm going to, I'll quit, I promise. Paul was hungry, spiritually. There was something that he was looking for, and he had not yet found it. Now, he didn't know this. And I tell you, in my years of experience as a pastor, in my own life, as well as observing people in the pew, I have seen time after time after time people who were wanting something. They were hungry for it, but they didn't know it. They didn't know what they wanted. Now, what they needed was something for their spirit. Paul was searching for spiritual satisfaction, and that's why he persecuted the church so hard, because he thought he would gain it there. You see, Judaism required perfection. Paul was trying with all his might to be perfect, and he was falling short. That's why he described all those things that he did. He, he was as near perfect as he could make himself. He was blameless and faultless, but yet deep down in the heart of Paul, there was something lacking, and he didn't know what it was, and he was striving hard because his religion said you've got to be perfect, and he knew that he couldn't be perfect. Let me tell you, you don't need Jesus Christ 
if you're perfect. If you're perfect. If you can claim perfection, there is no need for the death of Christ on the cross. This is what Paul was struggling with. He could not satisfy himself. He couldn't come to realize what his problem was until the road to Damascus when the great miracle took place. And in that, Paul found righteousness, and he found peace, and he found joy, and he found freedom from that struggle that was going on inside. There are many church people that have an internal struggle, and they fight against the church. You think Paul is the only one that ever fought against the church? There are church people who fight against the church. And why is it that they are bitter and backbiting and critical and won't support and refer to the church as they, identifying the fact that they don't want to be a part? And all of those things that wants to, to make us sit back and look and be critical. I'll tell you what it is. You're persecuting the church like Paul was persecuting the church because you don't have a heart that has been regenerated by the miracle of Damascus. Once that miracle has taken place, then there is a new attitude and a new value system. Finally, it brought Paul to the place where he said, I can do all things through Christ that strengthens me. We can face today's world and our personal problems, not escape the problems, but have a foundation upon which we can build our life so that we've got strength to face our problems and we have somebody to depend upon when we come to those problems and we all have them. I'm telling you to be converted is costly. It cost Paul his total way of thinking. It cost him his total value system. It cost him all that he had been educated for. It cost him his membership in the synagogue. It cost him his life, ultimately. But he gained the truth. And the truth of what it meant to believe in the Son of God brought him righteousness, brought him peace, brought him joy, brought him freedom. If you don't have those things tonight, even though you're a member of this church, and I realize I probably am talking to all church members, I don't know you that well, but I suspect I am. And that's okay. I intended it that way. Consider your life on the road to Damascus. And answer in your own heart if the miracle took place in your life on your road to Damascus. And if you haven't experienced that miracle, this can, tonight, these aisles can be your road. Now why do we ask anybody to step out of a seat and come forward? I'm telling you, it's going to cost you if you do. 
because your pride is going to be in the way. You think, my goodness, all these years I've been a member of the church or, or some other church and now I'm, I'm going to do all that? Think of what you mean. But why do we ask you? Because we want you in the presence of God's people to be willing to stand up and say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the same one that brought Paul to his knees on the road to Damascus, and I receive him as my Savior. If you don't know that, you ought to know it before you leave. The Lord said, He who is ashamed of me before men, of him will I be ashamed before my Father. If you don't want him to be ashamed of you, and you need to accept Jesus Christ, you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, then be unashamed and say, I'm going to do what Paul did. Fall down on your knees before the Lord and say to him, Lord, what would you have me do? And the first thing he's going to tell you is to confess me before men. That's what he wants you to do tonight. Will you do it as we sing our closing hymn, 384? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description. Thank you for listening, and remember to try Trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.